Awesome. Well, class, today is the last class of our series that we've been in this month, uh, Back to School, and I've had a lot of fun with this series, and literally yesterday, my wife and I went back to my school. It was our 20-year high school reunion, and they did a tour of the school for uh, the alumni, and so I went to my uh, alma mater, Lane Tech, and it was the first time in many, many years that I've gone back, and it was so cool to just kind of walk the hallways, and I mean, they, they say that smell is a memory trigger. Oh, Oh my Lord, like I smelled it, like I smelled the gym and I thought about homecoming and gym class and dominating people and, and I, I, I smelled the, the shop areas and the hallways and the beautiful, there's like, I don't know, there's like a distinct Chicago smell to me of old buildings you mix like that marble and that old wood, like the field houses of back in the day and the park district houses. Does anybody know what that smell is? You know what I'm talking about? It's like a mixture of old mahogany and years of sweat. It's just kind of this beautiful Chicago mix. Um, and so, you know, I, I was having so much fun. My wife said I looked like a child as I was just smiling and telling her all the stories and, and walking her through. This is the classroom where, where I got kicked out, and that's the classroom where I got kicked out. And uh, here's another classroom. They didn't kick me out. I walked out of that one. And, you know, so I'm just kind of walking her through memory lane. And, and part of that is because... Uh, for me, one of my all-time favorite subjects in school throughout all my years of school was history. I am a big history buff. Where are my history buffs in the house? Come on, history people. Listen, don't, you, you math people, you better respect the history people. We're the ones that tell you where you've been and where you're going to go. Right? I love history, all types of history. Like I tell people all the time, if you're ever in a car with me and we're going through the city, I will give you the history of the city. I will tell you this building was this and that building was that. Yeah, let me tell you real quick, my favorite history, or one of my favorite Chicago history facts is that after the Great Chicago Fire, France donated crates of books to replace the public library that was burned during the Great Chicago Fire. What France didn't know, though, is that we did not have a public library before the Great Chicago Fire. So we were like, oh, yeah, the library. Oh, thank you. The kids, they appreciate this so much. They missed the library. <laughs> I love history. I love finding out little facts like that and, and little nuggets and, and discovering that, that one building right in front of Navy Pier that's the only one that's east of Lakeshore Drive. It was actually illegal. It's illegal to build east of Lakeshore Drive because that land is public property. It's in our charter from the beginning of the city, except that building was built on pillars that were on land east of Lakeshore Drive. So they kind of got away with it. I love history nuggets. I love finding out little facts. I love being able to live and breathe it. And there are many history books out there. There are books that you can read about Chicago history, about the history of the United States, the history of the American Civil War, the history of ancient Rome, the history of the Ming Dynasty in China. You can find all these books. And, and even beyond that, like just sitting down, I like to watch me a good old Ken Burns documentary and, and just find out things and learn about history. But this morning... I want to take time to examine the greatest history textbook that the planet has ever seen. The most important, the most vital, and the most crucial history book that's ever existed and ever will exist. And if you figured it out, I'm talking about the Bible. Let me tell you something, church. Knowing this book is probably the most critical thing to your spiritual walk than you'll ever have. More than coming to church every Sunday, 
more than even sometimes uh, some of the other ritualistic things we do like baptism and stuff like that. I'm not discounting any of those things. But if you don't know God's word, I'm telling you, you don't know God. If you don't take time to examine and study and put this word in your heart, you will not know the Lord. There's an old saying that says, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. Like it is critical critical for us to understand this book. However, statistics are telling us in this day and age, more than ever before since the inception of this book, we are seeing people more biblically illiterate than ever before. Even with all our advances in technology and all the resources that now help guide you, I mean, literally, there are YouTube channels and podcasts and video curriculum and online resources that will walk you word by word. They will explain everything. They'll give you all the scholarly research for you to fully understand and comprehend every bit of God's word. But the reality is a good majority of Christians, and then I would argue probably statistically a good majority of you have never really picked up this book and read it end to end. I've never really took the time to not just read it, but study it, understand it, and internalize it. Listen, there is something powerful about this book. And I'll tell you, for me, it's always evolving. I'm always getting more out of it. But for me, and, and I've mentioned this in the past, but reading that book all, my whole life and then going to Israel in February and then walking through the actual historical places that I've always read about was life-changing, right? Being able to, to oversee the city of David standing in the place where his palace would have been, walking through the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane where he had that final prayer, traveling on a boat across the Sea of Galilee, looking at the shore of Galilee where he recruited his disciples and then staring at the other side where the decathlon was and where he went and tried to reach the unlost or the lost people of this world, climbing the steps from the Pool of Siloam all the way to the Mount of Olives and, and, and seeing how, wow, this was only even, even discovered recently in 1993 where they began to excavate some of this. Like just being able to walk through history, it, it brings an understanding and a reality that this is not just a book of stories, but it is historical context. This Bible is critical to our spiritual walk. I've read it my whole life and I've gotten more and more context with it. But the problem, I think, for many of us is not just the laziness that we often have in reading the book, but some of the doubts and questions that we have about this book. And so today's class is going to be a little teachy. I want to walk through a lot of facts and a lot of understanding, but I think it's critical for you to have a firm grasp on not just uh, the sanctity of the book and the sanctity of the spiritual components of this book, but even the quantifiable realities of why we can trust this book, of why we consider this the word of God. And so let me just go through a few common questions that I've often gotten from people in regards to why they might doubt the word of God. And the number one, or the first one I should say that I've often heard is people asking this question. Well, how can the Bible be the word of God if it was written by men, right? How can I trust that? How can the Bible be the word of God if it was written by men? Well, first of all, let me just say this. All textbooks in the world are written by men. 
Every book you've ever read in school and studied in school, every math book, every history book, every social studies book, it's all been written by men. You trust it because you believe that there were experts behind us. You don't know those experts. You've never met those experts. You didn't sit down and look up their credentials. You just got that book. You're like, well, listen, it said it. And we took their word for it. But the scripture, even the Bible itself, goes so far as to explain to you, yes, it was written by man, but it was inspired by God. Listen to what the word of God says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This is the believer's textbook. Not Pastor Joey's sermons, not some podcast that you listen to, not some other pastor that you look at on YouTube. The word of God should be your greatest teacher when it comes to your spiritual walk. Please don't ever just take my word for it. Somebody gave, gave me a really great compliment the other day. They said, wow, you use a lot of scripture in your sermons. And to that I said, I don't know how else I would preach it then. Because it can't be the word of Joey. I'm not that good. Okay, it has to be from the word of God. So just to give you an idea, everything I try to communicate to you, I try to show you where I got it from. This is why I think that. This is why I believe that. It's not my opinion. It is the word of God. And so we believe that this is the inspired word of God. And I believe there is powerful evidence to explain how this is the inspired word of God. Take this for example. I think some of us, if we don't know, we might misunderstand and, and assume that, that somebody just sat down and wrote this from cover to cover. No, the Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents and three different language, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Okay, this is a long span of information, right? It was written across Asia, Europe, Africa. It was written, those 40 different authors had 40 different backgrounds. Some were kings, some were fishermen, some were philosophers, some were statement. But maybe most convincing of all, the Bible covers hundreds of controversial subjects that can easily have hundreds of different opinions. And yet, from beginning to end, it feels as if there was one author. If you were to take just 40 of you in this room or 40 authors and put them in a room and say, hey, I, I'd like you to write something for me. Right? Let's say we get 40 people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, and we ask them to write about one controversial subject. How many know we'll get 40 different ideas, 40 different ideologies, 40 different interpretations? And yet in the scriptures, it's seamless. From beginning to end, with hundreds of touch points across this entire book, we see the hand of God laid upon those men who wrote those scriptures. Now, if the Bible was written over a thousand years by so many different people, the next logical question would be, how was it all put together then? Who gets to decide what is scripture and what is not scripture? How do we organize that? Well, in order to understand that, you gotta, again, let me take you a step further. This book is not one book, but a collection of books. It's a walking library. It's 66 books combined into one volume. It's 66 books made up of the Old Testament, 39 books, and the New Testament, 27 books. 
But there's one central theme that connects those two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament explained that because of sin entering into the world through one man and Adam, we have been separated from God, and that one day the Messiah, the Redeemer, would come back and restore relationship with the dead, and he would resurrect us to everlasting life. And then the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's not the abolishment of the Old Testament. It's not to say now the Old Testament is irrelevant. No, the New Testament is the fulfillment of everything we read in the Old Testament. That Jesus did indeed come. He did give his life on the cross, resurrected three days later, and fulfilled the promises. You know when I read in Hebrews 11, chapter, verse 13, and it said that they all died having not seen the promise, but they believed because they saw ahead. That promise was the promise promise of Jesus. All throughout those Old Testament, all of them died believing that the Messiah would come, and he did indeed come, and we read all about it in the New Testament. So you got the Old Testament, the prequel, you got the New Testament, the sequel, and we are living in, in, in the trequel, trequel, in the trilogy right now. Right now is the third part of this story. And we're waiting for that other promise that Jesus would once again return for his people or return to the king for those like Pastor Carlos who are big fans of those books. <laughs> now listen, if that wasn't enough, the second aspect of that that we need to understand is how the Bible was put together. Or there's a word that scripture uses called, or not scripture, but we use in regard to scripture called canon. The canonization of the Bible. What does canon mean? Canon means a standard, or in regards to scripture, an officially accepted list of books, okay? Now, most practitioners of Judaism do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Around 70 AD, there were many Christians that had sprout out. Remember, Jesus died around the 30s, and so you got about 30 plus years of Christians coming into fruition, coming to faith. I mean, the first gospel message, 3,000 people got saved, so the church is blowing up. And because of that, there's a lot of writings that are beginning to put into play. The gospels are beginning to get written. Uh, different epistles to the different churches are beginning to get written. And so Judaism, in order to try to keep that separation, they decide, hey, we got to make sure that those books don't get confused with our books. And around 70 AD, there's another critical thing that happens to the Jewish people is the fall of the second temple. The temple had been destroyed at one point. They rebuilt it. And around 70 AD, uh, the temple gets conquered again and it gets torn down. I mean, most Jews are still waiting for the resurrection of the temple, not even understanding that that was Jesus. But listen, in order to preserve the Holy Scriptures, the Jewish people unified as leadership and established the Old Testament canon what we would call the Old Testament, Jews call the Torah. In a moment, I'll explain how they determined those books, but let me go into the New Testament canon. The New Testament never argues or conflicts with the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Christ himself gives witness to it on several occasions. But the New Testament required a canon to separate fact from fiction. Why? There were several writings floating around. Every Joe Schmo thought they'd give an opinion. It's like now, when you have the internet. Everybody feels like we want to read your opinion. You have no expertise, no understanding, but you want to chime in. And so there were several people that were writing several letters. And so they needed a way to be able to differentiate between what is the word of God and what is the word of Bill, okay? They needed to try to clarify those two things. So how did they decide that? Well, the number one question was this. 
Did it come from the apostles or someone in close relation to the apostles? The apostles, the original 12 minus Judas, these were the men who walked with Jesus, who saw the miracles, who were hand-eye witnesses, who were in the mix and reliable on explaining everything that we read in the Gospels and everything that we read afterward because they are now the fathers of the church. The apostles had personal relationship with Jesus and the people who wrote the New Testament, New Testament lived throughout that timeline. When Luke writes the gospel about Mary's conversation with the angel Gabriel, and I've thought about this myself. I remember at one point I was reading that and it tells you that, that Gabriel comes and he speaks to Mary and he says, you will be with child and his name will be Emmanuel and, and they're going through all this. And I remember thinking to myself, man, how did Luke know what Gabriel said? <laughs> Luke wasn't there. Luke wasn't in the room. How did Luke know? Well, we know that Luke was a scholar, a doctor. We know that he was studious. And we know that he was writing a, a record of what went on. Do you know what Luke did? He sat down with Mary, who was still alive, and said, Mary, you tell me what Gabriel said. You give me the account of this information. So what we're reading in scripture was not written 2,000 years after the events. It was written within the exact time frame of what had happened. And so we can rely on that because of the proximity to when it was written. So we talked about the Bible, right? We talked about how God inspired and we covered how it was put together. But here's the next question. And I often hear this. Well, the Bible was written so long ago. How do you know we're not having a telephone effect? You know what the telephone effect is? You ever played telephone when you were a kid? Telephone was, uh, you tell one person in the line of people a phrase, you know, purple monkey dishwasher. And then you know, that person tells the next person, tells the next person, tells the next person. And by the end of the line of people, it's a completely different sentence. Because every person adds or takes away a little bit of information or mishears or, or manipulates or something happens along the line. So a lot of critics of the Bible say, well, how do we know that's what actually said? How do we know that that wasn't just lost in translation over time? You know, the Bible is so old. How do you know we haven't lost things in translation? Well, let me tell you something. Going back to the canonization of the Old Testament. <clears throat> the Jewish copiers, the scribes of the Old Testament had horribly strict rules, incredibly strict rules. Let me give you just a few of them, okay? Each copy or manuscript, copy of the original, had to be written in a certain number of columns of 30 letters with and a certain number of lines to each of them. Each copy had to be made from a certified original. Every letter was copied one at a time from the original. They could not even write one letter from memory. So if you're writing the word the, you had to go T, T, H, H, E, E. You couldn't just write T, H, E. The distance between each letter was measured by a single hair or a thread. Every letter on every page and book was counted against the original. The number of times each letter occurred in the book was counted and compared against the original. And here's the worst part. Here's where I would have quit as a scribe. If one of these rules and many other rules that I haven't brought in, but if even one rule was violated, if one rule was broken, the entire copy was destroyed. Could you imagine? Like if you're at the end of the book of Isaiah, and you're about to hit that period, and you threw a comma in there, and they go, sorry, we're going to have to burn it. 
I'm like, I'm gonna have to burn you. <laughs> like, I'm sorry as well. Like, like you, I was probably like months, years of work that I put into that. But that's how they were able to guarantee the authenticity of what they're writing. Because this wasn't somebody just hanging out in their room, dictating from somebody else. This wasn't some willy-nilly operation. This was sacred to the scribes of the Old Testament. This was the mandate from the Lord and a duty that they took utterly seriously. As for the New Testament, there were two main rules to follow when establishing the reliability of any historical document. How do we know that the New Testament writings can be authenticated? How do we know that they're good? Well, from an archaeological standpoint, not a spiritual standpoint, but just straight up archaeology, when they are trying to figure that out, how can we tell? They look at a few things. What are the number of manuscripts or copies still around in existence? You know, how many of those we have? So let's say we had one copy. Well, we don't know if that's legit or not. But if you have a number of copies, then the legitimacy of that ancient writing begins to climb through it. And then the other one is how much time between the first original writing and the closest manuscript? Is it 100 years? Is it 1,000 years? Like how far apart from the original and the copy? Those are two main areas that they look at. Well, the second most historical ancient manuscripts that we have are the Iliad, a poem by Homer, the ancient Greek scribe. The Iliad by Homer has the second most manuscripts of any ancient writing with 643 manuscripts. And there's a 500 gap between the original and the oldest manuscript. The Bible, over 24,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament today, with some of the youngest ones being 50 years within the original, meaning it's within the lifespan of the person that wrote the original. <laughs> this isn't just incredible. It's a miracle that you could find that. As a matter of fact, on one of my uh, trips in Israel, we got to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found just a few years ago, within 50 years. And they found it uh, near the Dead Sea, buried in this cave, and they pulled these scrolls out, and they were scrolls from the Old Testament. And I got a video of it. It's so beautiful to look at because it was so preserved, buried in that mud. <laughs> They've done studies on those scrolls as they look through everything. What's written on those ancient books of the Old Testament is within like a 98% accuracy of what we have today in our Bible in the Old Testament. The only differences were minute little things like phrases or the way it was kind of ordered and, and this word came before that word. But as far as context, it's identical. What they found written from within the time frame of Jesus and what we have today, over 2,000 years ago, is still incredibly accurate. You know why? Because of what Luke 21, 33 says. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Amen. You know, again, it's not just lost to time. There have been concentrated efforts from multiple groups of people to eradicate Scripture. Constantly, the Bible has been under attack. Constantly, when governments try to overthrow its people and they're burning books, the Bible is one of the first books they burn. The Bible is one of the first books that they hunt down. And even today, in countries all across the world, it is illegal to even own this book. This book has been hunted down since its inception. But heaven and earth will pass away, and the word of God will never pass away. So we looked at the answers to the following things. How do we... 
the Bible inspired by God and how was the Bible put together and how do we know that the Bible is the most historical document ever? But I want to add one more important question to that list because all that can be true and accurate and powerful. And listen, most scholars, they don't deny the authenticity of the scriptures, that it was written, that, that it's accurate from when it was written. As a matter of fact, uh, there was an archeologist that was working at the Field Museum in Chicago who was able, he uncovered, he was a, a, an Egyptian uh, archeologist, and he was able to uncover names of specific people on specific artifacts that correlated with scripture at the same time frame. So even as a historical context and reference point, the Bible is still being used by people for its accuracy and authenticity. But it can be the most accurate ancient writing we've ever discovered. But that doesn't mean it has the power to do anything in your life. The real question is, why should we read the Bible? Not just because it's ancient writing, not just because it's still accurate to the beginning, but why is it so critical from what I said in the beginning for you and I to take hold of this scripture? It's not enough for you to hear it from me. That's secondhand. Listen, a lot of people have been manipulated by church leaders because the word of God was always given to them secondhand. You just took his word for it or her word for it. No, you have access now to the very voice of God. Some of us sitting here wondering what to do next in our life. This book has that answer. Some of us are sitting here wondering why things happen in our life. This book has that answer. Some of us are trying to figure out how to raise our family. This book has that answer. Some of us are trying to figure out how to better our marriage or start our marriage. Yeah. Everything you need, right? Somebody told me when I was a teenager that Bible meant basic instructions before leaving earth. It's everything you need in order to succeed at the life that God has given you. But let me take it one step further in Matthew chapter seven, verse 24 through 25. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, whose words? God's words and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall, why? Because it had its foundations on the rock. The word of God is a rock, a foundation for my feet, an establishment of my faith. That's why we've said often, we don't have blind faith, we have rooted faith. It's rooted in the word of God. It's rooted in the scriptures. This isn't just me kind of blindly feeling the Holy Spirit and seeing where the vibe leads me. The word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a guide for my path. The word of God is what leads me to the Lord. It's what leads me to the decisions I need to make so that when storms of life begin to beat you down, when they threaten to destroy your life, you can lean on the rock, the word of God that will keep you standing. So when you get those thoughts in your head from the enemy that you're not good enough, you can pick up the word of God and realize I was good enough for him. When the enemy begins to tell you that there's no purpose in your life, you can read the word of God and hear the Lord say, no, I have a purpose for your life and I have a plan for you, not to hurt you or to harm you, but to give you hope, to give you a future. The Bible even tells us when those thoughts and those anxieties and those depressions and suicidal ideations creep up, what does it say? It says that we take every thought captive and we submit it to God you know what that means that means I take that thought that I'm not good enough that I'm not loved and I go is this true Lord and then I read all throughout it bro I couldn't be further from the truth 
okay, so now I got to make a decision. Do I believe this thought that probably came from way too much White Castle way too late in the night? Or do I believe what God has been saying for the last 2,000 years to me? I got to believe the book. But here's the problem, right? The problem isn't that this isn't accurate. The problem is that it's not in you. And so if it's not in you, how are you going to use it? If it's not in you, if you're not studying and if you're not taking time to learn it, and listen, you have a lifetime to learn it. I'm not saying you got to figure this out by tomorrow. You got a lifetime to learn it. And since we're on the subject of school, some of you are struggling big time and you shouldn't be. Why? Because the teacher gave you an open book test and you're too lazy to open the book. I mean, listen, y'all. Do you know how... For all the teachers out there, we've just been celebrating our teachers. You know what it is. I mean, that, that kid's trying to fail. It's an open book test. I wrote half the answers on the board. How did you still fail? What are you going to say when you stand before God? It's like, what, again? It's like, I didn't know. You didn't want to know. It was written. Everything you needed. It was real. Why did you treat your spouse like that? Well, the way I grew up, I had a manual to correct what happened when you grew up. Well, why am I struggling with that? Listen, I'm sorry. You have every reason why you're as jacked up as you are. I get that. But the book removes excuses. The book is the manuscript that helps change the course of your life and the course of generations to come after you. So when you have questions about your identity and who you are, rather than running to your friends, your neighbors, your family, or culture, we run to the word of God. When the devil threatens to destroy my family and push me into depression, I can stand on the word of God and know that I will not be moved. Worship team, if you can help me out. Why don't you think about something for a second? Why don't you think about money? Specifically, I want you to think about some dollar bills. Say, Let's just hypothetically say I had a $100 bill here for somebody. How many of you in this room, just show of hands, would, would take it if I offered it to you, right? $100 bills, okay. Everybody who rose their hand is true. Everybody who didn't, you're a liar. <laughs> We'd all take it. Why not? If I was like, no, honestly, no strings attached. Here's 100 bucks. We would all take it. But I don't know if you understand this. Did you know that money, paper or digital, is not backed by anything? I mean, if you go history, before, back in the day, <clears throat> our money as a U.S. Uh, government, it used to be backed by silver or gold. And so we had enough silver or gold to match the paper money that we printed. It was a backing so that if anyone ever called us on it, here's these precious metals that balance that out. But literally, like 100 years ago, we stopped doing that. Your money is backed by the belief we have in it. We believe it's worth something. And because we believe it's worth something, we take it as currency. But think about it. If I gave you a million dollars in cash and you went to some far off country with an unreached people group in the Amazon and you said, hey, listen, I want to buy your land. Here's a million dollars. That million dollars is eventually going to just be toilet paper for them because they don't believe in that currency. They don't have any faith in that. It only means something to you. It doesn't mean anything to them. Why am I saying all that? The Bible is worth more than all the money in the world. Its wisdom and riches have stood the test of time. 
But the power behind the word of God is the faith that we have in it. You know, there are scholars all across the world with all types of degrees who know the Bible better than any of us and don't believe in it. I remember I was taking an online course with a Yale professor going through a New Testament survey. Brilliant man. Covered amazing things. But didn't believe a word of it. It was just scholarly to him. Even that Israel trip, our tour guide, knew the Bible. He'd even argue with us. You need to read it in Hebrew. The original way. I read it in Hebrew. I even read a little bit of Greek. I go, yes, you know it all. But you don't believe any of it. And you're sad. And you're hurting. And it's why when we demonstrated the love of God to you, you wept with us. Listen, you can read this book front and back and know every detail and every background and every understanding and differentiate between the poems and the historical facts and the letters. And you can be amazingly scholarly at it and still not see the Lord in it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in who? You who believe. See, the Bible has the power to change lives in those who believe. But to an unbeliever, the Bible says of itself, it's foolishness. The gospel is foolishness to unbelievers. So here's the thing. I'm talking to the believers in this room. Christians, do you believe that the power that the Bible has the power to transform your life? Then why aren't you reading it? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit can make clear what you don't understand? Then why aren't you studying the Bible? Do you believe that the Bible can transform your daily life and the life of generations after you? Then why aren't you opening it daily? If you believe all these things and then do none of them, I would argue you don't believe at all. Let me give you this poem I came across. It's an unknown author, but I really love what it says. It says, though the cover is worn, by the way, a worn Bible is a good Bible. And the pages are crackling and it's all tore up and covered through and through. That's one of the most beautiful things on the planet. Though the cover is worn and the pages are torn, and though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is the book worn and old that can shatter and scatter my fears. When I prayerfully look in this precious old book, Many pleasures and treasures I see. Many tokens of love from the Father above who is nearest and dearest to me. This old book is my guide. It's a friend on my side. It lightens and brightens my way. And each promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it today. To this book I will cling. Of its worth I will sing. Though great losses and crosses be mine, for I cannot despair, though surrounded by care, while possessing this blessing divine. See, this Bible is not just a record of history. It is the record of his story. This is the story of my God. 
This is the voice of my Lord. A story of redemption, of grace, of love, of salvation. A story that is still being written today through you and I. John chapter 21, verse 24 and 25. This disciple is the one who testifies to the events and has recorded them here. This is John speaking of himself. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that it would be written in. Every one of us is a page in this story now. Something that people look to to see the evidence of the Lord. But we cannot be all that God has called us to be. We cannot do all that God has called us to do. We can't understand the thing that God wants us so desperately to understand. If we don't just take the time to read it. And listen to me. I want you to understand this. It's not about quantity of reading. It's just about the quality of reading. If all you can comprehend is a verse a day, read a verse a day. Because I'd rather you be consistently good than occasionally great. I read a whole chapter. That's the first time you've read in like two years and probably the last time you're going to read in the next five. But if you take time every day, well, how do I start? Listen, I'm not even telling you. By the way, to the fellas, for some reason, especially young guys, just don't start in Revelation. Every dude wants to start in Revelation. I don't know what it is about you guys. I read the book of Revelation. I was like, listen, okay, I told you I'm bad at math. Figure out one, two, three before you figure out, you know, advanced algebra. That's not going to make sense to you right away. You want to start with a book? Start with the book of John, the one he just talked about. But why do they always say start with the book of John? It's the gospel story of Jesus Christ. It's written from an incredible perspective of love, and it's a very simple read. And then when you read the book of John, go into the birth of the church with the book of Acts. Understand how we came to be. What are the roots of who we're called to be? So that periodically we remember what God has called us to. And then when you read the book of Acts, get into some of the epistles. The epistles are just the writings that the disciples had to the various churches and people throughout scripture. So Corinthians was a letter written to the church in Corinth. Ephesians was a letter written to the church in Ephesus. These are the pastors that are correcting and leading the church. And listen, don't neglect the Old Testament. Start, you know, if you want to start there, start with the first six chapters of Genesis. You know, for me, one of the best history books in the Old Testament is reading the book of Samuel and Chronicles. Phenomenal stories of war and battle and kings and armies. I mean, that, that really fires me up just reading those things. You guys like Braveheart? Read the book of Chronicles. Blows that away. You're a worshiper, you got a poetic heart, get into the book of Psalms. Study the book of Proverbs. If you're married, get into Song of Solomon. <laughs> if you're not, hold up, buddy, chill out. We'll get you there. Listen, your entire life, believer, should be spending this book. And when you're done reading it, read it again. And when you're done reading it again, read it again. Well, why do I got to keep reading the same thing that says the same thing, but you're not the same person? So when you read that a second time, you're different. It's like you ever seen a cartoon as an adult that you watch as a kid, and you're like, oh, that was inappropriate. <laughs> I did not understand that joke when I was six. But that's a rerun. They didn't change the cartoon. You changed. Your understanding grew. Church, I'm telling you right now, we could never be 
God called Belmont to be if this church is filled with biblically illiterate people? Never. We gotta get desperate about the book. We gotta read our history if we wanna repeat it. If we wanna be who God called us to be. Stand to your feet, church. pray with you. Believer and unbeliever alike. For those of you who are unbelievers and you're not yet convinced, what did Jesus say? Taste and see that I'm good. Open the book for yourself. Start to read it. Start to study it. Even if you just think it's anecdotal. The word of God is powerful. But to the believers, I'm not saying you got to be a biblical professor. I'm just asking you not to be biblically illiterate. Take time. You need resources. The leadership is here to help you with that. There are websites. There are books. There are, go to my office, pull a book off my shelf. I got tons of textbooks in there. Like you need help, just whatever. We will never let you have an excuse, guys. (laughs) Whatever you need to get good at it, get good at it. But even if it's just learning the ABCs, just reading it for what it is, you never go wrong pick up that precious word of God. Let me pray for you because without the Holy Spirit's help, we're not going to be able to accomplish this. Holy Spirit, we thank you, God. We thank you for the inspiration of this word. We thank you, Lord, because it's infallible, because everything you've given us is true and right. And Lord, I, I pray even now, God, those of us who have been swayed by our own opinion based on our own experiences, God, I pray that we would erase all that and lead our life based on your truth and your word. Father God, I pray that you would help us. Give us the the physical energy, God, to make a commitment to reading your word. Lord, to, to make time for your word, or even better, God, to schedule everything else around our time with your word, Lord. Father, forgive us for putting other things in precedence over reading our Bible for making scrolling through our phones our higher priority or or hanging out or watching TV or, or just aimlessly doing nothing when we can take time. God, whether it's reading your word or listening to an audio version of your word, God, I pray that we would take time to diligently study this precious, precious book. Oh, Father, I pray, help us to have the same desperation that so many believers across this world have who don't have access to this word, who desperately cling to a small piece of paper with one of two verses on it, and they cry out to you for more, God. Oh, Lord, that we wouldn't be so selfish, that we would neglect this precious privilege we have in knowing your word and studying it and internalizing it and living it. So Holy Spirit, give us the conviction that can only come from you to believe, to read, and to live all that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for this precious word. Help us to be A-plus students, diligent in all that we do. I pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone here said, amen. Would you give God a hand clap of praise for his word? Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
Amen. Church, we love you. I want to encourage you. If you need a Bible, if you want a physical one, we have some beginner Bibles available, New Testaments. We'll help you with that. But I encourage you, get on Amazon, make an investment. Get a Bible. Talk to us. We will help you. Download the free version app. Do what you got to do, but get that word in your life. Amen. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you on Wednesday.